You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon this evening, The Son of God, Part 2. The Son of God, Part 2. Just before we get started, some uh, a couple of announcements here. Uh, next week, my family and I won't be here. We'll be on a little vacation, much-needed vacation and rest. Uh, so pray for us as we travel. My uh, good friend, Pastor Chris Chung, if you remember him from the beginning of the year who spoke to us, he'll be preaching in, in my place instead. And, and please do pray that my family and I won't get sick along the way, uh, Judah and and. Uh, Judah is sick currently. He's caught another cold, uh, and so he's at home. Um, in, in addition to that, after this week and after Pastor Chris's uh, message next week, we will actually be going and starting into a new series for Christmas called Advent. So we'll be taking a break from the John series until the new year. But get excited for that Christmas series. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, why the Christmas season is uh, all about Jesus and what Jesus brings in, in this season. But with that said, we're going to jump into our sermon this evening in our passage tonight. Now, over the years, many preachers and theologians have discussed the nature in which we can logically conclude that Jesus was who he said he was. C.S. Lewis, among other preachers, even dating all the way back to the early 1800s, presented what they called the trilemma. The trilemma simply reasoned that Jesus, in reality, could only be three things. Either he was a, a lunatic, a liar, or he was Lord. The argument goes like this. First, if Jesus claimed to be God and yet was not, that would mean he was simply a lunatic, a, a crazy person, self-deceived, delusional, and, and rightly so, because if I claim to be Superman in front of you tonight, your right response would be, okay, I see the resemblance, but Pastor Ian probably has gone off the deep end. And yet what we see with Christ in the Gospels is not someone who is functioning under a delusion or without reason. We see that there is logic, there is wisdom in the things that he says and does. He, he doesn't behave as someone who is delusional or out of their minds. So the argument continues then. If Jesus is neither God or a lunatic... He must then be a liar, someone who deceived the masses, maybe someone like a politician who promises the people um, goods, but just to win their vote, but not actually having the power or the ability to deliver. Yet again, what we see in the Gospels is not someone who is out to garner votes or power or position or status. Jesus wasn't campaigning to be king. He already was king. Or, or he wasn't being, he was, he wasn't trying to be a revolutionary, nor did he show an effort to deceive the masses just to get more people to follow him. In fact, he does quite the opposite. He, he makes it difficult for people to follow him. He says, in order to follow me, you need to eat my flesh, you need to drink my blood, you need to leave your families behind, you need to pick up a cross and follow me. It's not easy to be a follower of Christ. In addition to that, Jesus' teachings are far from deceptive. They're, they're morally sound at the very least. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
These are the foundations of what even unbelievers would consider the basis of a civil society. At the most, unbelievers would even consider Jesus as a morally sound teacher, not a liar or a deceptive person. So the trilemma reasons, if you cannot accept that Jesus was a lunatic, then you must affirm that he was a liar. But if you can't affirm that he was merely a lunatic or a liar, then the only logical conclusion is that he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the only one worthy to be called Lord. And again, this is the point of John's gospel. He's writing to convince his readers that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. Again, John 20, verse 31 Again, memorize this verse. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you might have life in His name. Remember what we said last week, that the entirety of our Christian faith is dependent on Jesus being the Son of God. If He isn't the Son of God, and then there would be no resurrection, no eternal hope, no assurance of God's love, no forgiveness of sin, no grounds by which we can say we, he, he was a good moral teacher. He was simply a liar or a lunatic, and our entire faith falls apart. Jesus' claims as the Son of God is the focal point of our Christian faith. And as we'll see tonight, what we do with this claim is ultimately what determines whether or not we are truly followers of God, whether or not we truly honor God or, or believe His Word or have actually come to have a relationship with Him. And my hope, listeners, is that by the end of this sermon, you would truly decide who Jesus is to you because there's no sitting on the fence. There's no middle ground. There's nothing of being an agnostic what we do with Jesus' identity determines the rest of our eternity. Jesus himself said, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. John has already declared in the beginning of our study, John 3, 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is no middle ground with Jesus so if you have yet to truly accept this truth as Jesus being the Son of God, I pray that you would be moved by the Spirit tonight to do so, to, uh, to put your faith in Jesus tonight as the Lord of your life. Now, if you've already settled with the identity of Christ as the Son of God, I hope to unpack for you further what this identity entails and how it further impacts our own relationship with God. So let's jump back into our passage. Everyone say jump. If you remember from last week, in the first part of our study on this topic, we had already mentioned three truths concerning Christ's identity as the Son of God. Firstly, we said Jesus was claiming to be equal to God in nature. Equal to God in nature. Verse 17 of our passage says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. By saying that God was his father, Jesus was declaring that he was of the same essence, the same substance as God. And this was further emphasized when Jesus relates it to the Sabbath and God's work. Jesus' statement of, my father is working until now and I am working, was saying the same way that God did not need to rest on the Sabbath and how God is not burdened by his divine work to uphold the universe during the Sabbath, Jesus too was not encumbered when he healed the man on the Sabbath, the paralytic man by the pool of Bethesda. 
He basically took the rules that the Jews had created to give God a loophole for the Sabbath and applied it to himself. Now, as mentioned, the Jews understood these claims as Jesus equating himself with God. This was the ultimate blasphemy for anyone in the Jewish faith. Again, it is the reason why they wanted Jesus dead and why they ultimately crucified him because he claimed to be the son of God, making himself equal with God by nature. But not only in nature, Jesus also claimed to be equal to God in work, in work. So in verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus was saying that he didn't do anything independent of God's will, that everything he did was what he saw the father doing. As we mentioned, this touches on the impeccability of Christ, the reality that Jesus could not do anything wrong. He could not sin. He could not tell a lie. He could not be evil because he only does what the father is doing. He only does what, he, what is pleasing to God. God cannot sin, therefore Jesus cannot sin. God cannot be evil, therefore Jesus cannot be evil. Again, Jesus is throwing fuel to the fire. This would have enraged the, the religious leaders all the more, making them want to persecute him and then kill him all the more. And of course, this wasn't without purpose. Jesus was dismantling this apostate religion of the Jews that, that these religious leaders had been perpetuating over the year. Now, as we concluded last week, Jesus also claimed to be equal to God in love, equal to God in love. That the reason why the Father shared his work with the Son and why the Son was so obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, was because of love. This eternal, this infinite, this perfect love between the Father and the Son. Verse 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus is saying that these displays of powers and miracles of God's work is, demonstrates, is a demonstration of the Father's love for the Son. And the greater demonstration of this love is come, namely the salvation, the redemption of those who would believe, the salvation of those who would come together to comprise the church, the bride of Christ. As mentioned last week, the whole point of redemption, the whole redemption story is the father demonstrating his perfect love for the son by redeeming for him a bride, the church. And again, the same perfect love, this infinite, eternal, irrevocable, unconditional love the father has for the son is the same love that Christ has for us, the church. And is in fact a reflection of the Father's love for those who would believe in His Son. That's our security, church. Our, our assurance of eternal life. Because similar to how God the Father will never cease to love the Son, us who are in Christ, by faith, are loved with that infinite, eternal, irrevocable love. God will never cease to love us. Again, this is why Jesus needs to be the Son of God. Because if he is not, then we have nothing. We have no assurance, no security, no example or demonstration of God's love. The depths and the riches of God's love for us is only made evident by his love for the Son. Now Jesus doesn't stop there because he goes on further to, to expound on what his identity as a Son of God entails. He says in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. That's what was, what's Jesus talking about here. What does the ability to raise the dead or give life entail? Well, 
For one, this is, talk, this is touching on the, the ultimate power in the universe. That the greatest feat, the greatest act someone or something can do, that is to grant life. And not just grant life, but to create life out of nothing. Have you noticed that with, with all the technological advancements humanity has achieved and all the progress that we've made in science and in, in the medical field, humanity has still not been able to create life out of nothing. Even scientists with all their theories about how humanity evolved from stardust and some primordial soup still have not been able to recreate the process of creating life out of nothing. Why? Because that power belongs to God alone. What Jesus is saying here is that he is equal to God in power. Equal to God in power. What did John say at the start of his gospel? John 1 verse 3 to 4. All things were made through him, that's Jesus, and without him was not not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life finds its source, its origin, its definition in the Son of God. Put it this way, without the Son of God, there would be no life to have ever existed in this universe. That's the ultimate power being spoken of here. That's what Christ is claiming here, his, his ability to give life, to restore life, his identity as a source of life. Jesus makes this claim abundantly clear in John chapter 11, verse 25. When Lazarus died, he said to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet, sh- he sh- yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He then proves this claim by, by, by raising Lazarus from the dead. This is the power of the Son of God, which is equal with the Father. Now this, of course, touches on uh, what theologians call the doctrine of divine aseity. Divine aseity, the attribute of God of being self-derived or self-originated. The absolute self-sufficiency and the independence and the autonomy of God. God does not find his source of life outside of himself. He is not caused. He is, he is uncaused. And because he does not find the source of his life in anything but himself, it makes him the author of life, the, the, where life originates from. And that's what Christ is claiming equality with, with the Father. Now, in addition to this, notice what Jesus says at the end of that verse, in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. What's he mean here? Well, we have to understand that Jesus is talking in spiritual terms. The dead that the Father raises are those who are spiritually dead, dead in sin. We read this analogy throughout Scripture. And so the gift of life referred to in this verse is, of course, referring to salvation, resurrection, being raised to new life. So now when Jesus says that the Son has the same ability to give life, he's talking about salvation here and giving life to those who are dead in sin. But specifically, and this is very important, to whom he wills. It is by the will of God that someone receives eternal life, resurrection life. It's not by the will or efforts of man or the good works of man that one receives life from the Son. It is by His will, God's purposes, that anyone is gifted with new life. Again, Jesus talked about being born again back in chapter 3 with his conversation uh, with Nicodemus. That metaphor of being born again is to illustrate that that similar to how we had no say, no input, no control, did nothing to be physically born, 
There is nothing that we can do to be born again spiritually. It's all by the grace and the mercies of a holy God, by His will. And, the, and, and God the Father has given His authority and power to the Son to save according to the will of God. Jesus, Jesus expands on this notion of receiving the Father's authority when He goes on to say in verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Judgment denotes authority here. Jesus has the authority to judge. Now, 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 I don't know if you caught it, but something's a little off with this statement, with this verse. I wonder if you noticed it. How can the Son judge if the Father doesn't judge? We just read in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So how can the Son judge if the Father doesn't judge? Because if the Father doesn't judge, that means the Son doesn't see the Father judging, and the Son only does what He sees the Father doing. So how is Jesus the one to be judging? Anyone's brain hurt here? What does Jesus mean here? Well, for starters, we need to understand that Jesus is making the claim that He is equal to God in judgment. Equal to God in judgment. Meaning his judgment is in accordance with the Father's judgment. Meaning the the verdict, the conclusion that Jesus makes about an individual is reflective of how the Father would judge. Again, the Father gives him the authority to do so. Judgment here, by the way, is in reference to right standing with God. Remember, this whole conversation is is stemming from Jesus' encounter with the Jewish religious leaders concerning healing or, or doing a miracle on the Sabbath. They were trying to find fault in Jesus, trying to pronounce a guilty verdict on him. But Jesus claims that he is doing the impeccable work of God, that he is above reproach, that, and that if anything, it's him who has the authority to judge. So on, on one hand, Jesus is saying, the Father has given me the authority to judge, and my judgments are true, they are righteous, they are correct, because they line up with God's judgment. He is impeccable in his judgment. That's what Jesus is saying at first. But, this, but, but that still doesn't answer the seemingly paradoxical statement that Jesus makes. How can the Son judge if the Father doesn't judge? Again, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. See, it's not that the Father doesn't judge. Scripture is very clear that God is a judge. It's this, 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 this scripture or passages all the way in the Old Testament, starting from Genesis, saying that God is the judge of the world. But what Jesus is saying here is that He is the standard by which the Father judges. Meaning, the Father doesn't have some arbitrary way of judging humanity. He doesn't make judgments on a whim or has a relative scale of determining who is righteous and who is wretched. No, the standard, the benchmark by which the Father judges the world is through His Son, Jesus Christ. This verse is better read as this, For the Father judges no one on his own, but has given all judgment to the Son. Meaning, the judgment of the Father, his standard to determine who lives and perishes, is in fact the Son of God. What we do with the identity of Christ. God judges the world through his Son. Jesus is the standard. Not by how much good works someone does or even how much evil someone has done. It all falls on what we do with the identity of Christ as the Son of God. And to add even more clarity to this, clarity to this, it's Jesus alone who is the arbiter of God's judgment. Not the church, 
not the Pope, not Mary, not Muhammad, not a priest, not a preacher, not even ourselves. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's Jesus alone who carries out God's judgment and who has the final say on someone's life. Now, that truth right there ought to hit home with us. If you've ever felt like your sins have defined you, or, or your failures have shaped your future, or that you will forever be the victim of your past, this truth of Christ being the judge who has the final say ought to bring relief to us. Remember what happened with Paul, the, the persecutor of the church. If everyone, if everyone judged him according to his early days as a persecutor of the church, we wouldn't have half of the New Testament. We wouldn't have all the rich doctrines of the church. But what does Paul say in his letter to Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a, pers- a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had, I, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This should speak volumes to our own identity, to how we perceive ourselves and our relationship with God, especially in a world where everybody judges by the headline or, 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 what, we, or what they see on social media or, or how a single fault or in, indiscretion can have you canceled in society. Or, or if you've ever felt like you've been living in the shadows of your failures or in the wreckage of your sins, God is the one who has the final say. Jesus is the one who has the final say over your life. And notice how in this passage in 1 Timothy, Jesus called Paul not what he was. He called him what he would make him. He called him what he was going to sanctify him into, a faithful follower of Christ, a preacher, someone who who is worthy of sharing the gospel. Jesus called Paul not what he was, but who he was going to make him. And he does the same to us. He doesn't call us by our sin. He calls us by what the Savior has done in our lives, what he is doing in our lives, what he is sanctifying us into. Theologians would call this the effectual call of God, where God declares, where God calls, where God summons us to do something, to be something, and it is so. It happens. It may take time. It may take a a couple of failures, but God in his sovereignty, in his effectual call, will turn us into like his son, bring us from glory to glory. Jesus judged Paul faithful and worthy of his service despite having persecuted the church. It's Christ who has the final say on your life. It's Christ who proclaims a verdict on what your life will be known for. Christ is the judge. Sometimes we think that God being the judge is a bad thing. Well, not if you're in Christ. In Christ, God's judgment is for our good. It's for our benefit. It's why we mustn't fear the verdicts of God in our lives because the verdicts of God is our victory. Christ, as the judge, is is terror for the sinner, but it's triumph for the saint. 
God's judgment is carried out in Christ. He is the arbiter of the, of the Father's judgment. And we see the ultimate expression of this when in the book of Revelation, in, in the age to come, we see Jesus seated on a great white throne, judging the world for its deeds. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In case you were wondering what this book of life mentioned in this passage, and actually all throughout Revelation is, it's, it's the Lamb's book of life. The record of all the names of all the elect whom the Lamb died for before the foundations of the earth. It is a record of those who will ultimately put their faith in the only Son of God. And those who are not written in this book of life are sent to the second death the lake of fire, where the fires are never quenched and the worms never die. This is a frightful end for those on the wrong end of God's judgment, for those who are not in Christ. The standard by which God the Father judges the world is through the Son. That's why all authority falls on Jesus for judgment, because it's by His name someone is deemed either a sinner or a saint. And it is He who will be judging us Every living, every one dead at the end of time. Again, John 3, verse 17 to 18 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. Jesus eliminates all notions of the middle ground or of being on the fence about him. He even says in verse 22 of the passage, of our passage, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the final characteristic of the Son of God that we see in our passage. Christ is equal to God. In honor, equal to God in honor, equal to God in value, in worth, in glory. Jesus is equal, equally deserving of worship as the Father is. Because as Scripture says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. You cannot say that you honor God, or that you believe in God, or that you worship God without honoring Jesus, without worshiping Jesus without recognizing his identity as the Son of God. That's what Jesus is getting at here with these religious leaders in our passage. Of all the things that he said so far, this is probably the most offensive thing to these Jewish leaders. These religious leaders were part of this false apostate religion that claimed to have access to God, that claimed to honor and worship God. But Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath their feet. Unless you honor me, you're actually not honoring God. 
The, the negative of that is, if you dishonor me, if you call me a liar, if you call me a blasphemer, guess what? You're calling the holy God the same. For these, for these legalistic, these pseudo-intellectuals, these self-righteous religious leaders who delighted in their influence over man, this would have been a slap to their face. And this is the fallacy of all world religions who claim to be another pathway to God. If you, do, if you do not regard Jesus as the Son of God or honor Him with the same reverence as God, then you have no grounds to claim worship of God or even, uh, or even an ounce of truth in your faith. Catholicism is heresy. Mormonism is blasphemy. Judaism is apostate. Islam and all other religions, religions doesn't even come close all because they do not honor or truly honor Jesus as a Son of God. If you do not honor the Son with the honor that He rightly deserves, then you do not honor God. You have no relationship with God. Jesus explicitly says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Access to the Father, to God, is only through honoring the Son. Jesus Christ is the only, is the only way to the Father. It's not through Mary or a priest or Muhammad or Moses or Buddha or, or keeping some rules or your attendance at church or your own efforts to do good. The only way, the only way to the Father is through the Son, Jesus Christ. Anything or anyone else that presents itself as a bridge to God is a, actually a ramp straight to hell. So Jesus is equal to God in power able to raise the dead, able to create life out of nothing. Jesus is equal to God in judgment. His decrees, his verdicts is, is aligned with the Father's judgment and is in fact the way that God judges the world in terms of what they do with the Son. What we do with the Son, and as we just mentioned, equal, Jesus is equal to God in honor. He's worthy of our praise, similar to how, how the Father is worthy of our praise. Jesus is the dividing line. His claims as a son of God is either the most outrageous claim made by any person who has ever lived, or it is the most truthful claim ever made with the greatest consequence if we do not accept it. Jesus is explicit about this. To sum it up, he says in verse 24, Truly, truly. Again, meaning amen and amen. A truth so true that it must be received. It must be believed. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. The negative, the negative of this statement is that if we don't believe in Jesus, if we don't believe in his claims of who his father is, then we don't have hope for eternal life. We, we come to judgment and the judgment is to remain in death, deserving of eternal punishment, the lake of fire. But look at the promise for those who would believe eternal life. Eternal life defined by Jesus is a relationship with the father. Not only that, but we are free of judgment because the judgment that we rightly deserve for our sins is instead placed on the cross, placed on the only Son of God, 
Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Finally, Jesus says that we have passed from death to life. We were once dead in our sins, the trespasses of our sins, condemned to die the second death. But in Christ, we are raised to life, able to experience the fullness of joy and peace in the Father. We have nothing to lose to put our faith in in the Son of God. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain by putting our faith in the Son of God. And listen, this isn't some future hope or something we need to earn or maintain in order to get. Jesus says very plain and very clearly, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's in the present tense. If you believe in Christ today, if you have faith in the Son of God today, he says you have eternal life today. You have passed from death to life today. Eternal life begins the moment we throw ourselves to the mercies of a holy God. Listen, because Jesus is the Son of God, because He is alive today and seated at the right hand of the Father, we have the promise of eternal life today. We are saved today, declared forgiven, redeemed today. All of that is only made possible today because Jesus is the Son of God. So the invitation stands. Similar to these religious leaders and even the, the paralytic who was healed by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. All of us need to decide who Jesus is to us. Was Jesus simply a good liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he indeed the Lord? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you do the work of softening our hearts in this moment? If there is anyone, O oh Lord, in this room who has yet to put their, their lives in your hand, if there's anyone in this room who has yet to declare you Lord of their, over their life, I pray that you would move them to do so this night. That today might be the day of salvation, O Lord. That today would be the day, Lord God, that you proclaim forgiveness and redemption and eternal life over that lost soul. And Lord, I pray for your children, for us who have already been found in you, yet still struggle in sin, still struggle in failure. Lord God, help us rejoice in the truth that Jesus is our judge, that in him we have been forgiven, that in him we have eternal life, that we have passed from death to life, that in him we are declared righteous, that he calls us not what we are or what we were, but who he is making us into. Lord, I pray that you'd help us stand 
in this identity, the identity that you have given us, you proclaim over us. Help us stand in your love as we read last week, Lord, that you have loved us with the Father's love and you've called us to abide in your love. Help us to truly know what this means. Help us to truly practice what this means. God, despite what may come in this world, whatever trials may hit us, Lord God, or whatever block we stumble over, or sin that we fail in, that we are eternally secured in your love. That in Christ, God, you have loved us with an infinite and irrevocable love. All displayed, all demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh God. Empower us, O oh Lord. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Fill us with these truths. That we might live lives worthy of the gospel, worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ, worthy of the Son of God who died in our place. your children to you. I pray that your will be done. In Jesus, your mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.